uh, University of Gothenburg uh, in Sweden, uh, who's a, a really awesome uh, scientist doing a lot of great stuff on um, uh, aquaponics. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Hi, yeah, and thanks for the uh, invitation. Um, so I'll just uh, share my presentation screen there. And uh, yeah, Angela gave a really great talk there. So I'll, um, I decided with this uh, presentation, I'd kind of, uh, uh, is the screen visible? The presentation visible? Um, hopefully so. So uh, yeah, I was gonna uh, talk about microbial communities and aquaponics um, and, and from a sort of a market perspective, because uh, a lot of nutrient exchanges is um, in a way is really similar to, uh, to a free market. My name is Victor Lobanov. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, as um, Steve mentioned. Um, I'm not representing the University of Gothenburg as a cannabis growing institution because cannabis is illegal in Sweden, but just talking as a microbiologist and uh, someone who's very interested in all types of aquaponic plant cultivation. So in this um, um, sort of talk, I'd like to introduce uh, the rhizosphere, kind of what are some of the dynamics going on inside it in terms of um, energy storage uh, via carbon and nitrogen, um, how other uh, nutrients uh, play a role in that exchange, how fungi uh, play a role in rhizosphere composition, some microbial assemblages that um, would be found in aquaponic systems. And uh, very briefly, I'll talk about some things uh, that could be measured. This talk will be much more sort of scientific and research driven than um, uh, as opposed to being a, a practical talk of things that you could implement. But uh, I hope that people find it informative. And sometimes it's nice to sit back and, and look at what, what's kind of the um, state of the art for research. So I tried to uh, do my best to, to review that. So looking at the rhizosphere is a very interesting, uh, um, is a really interesting environment because when we look at plants, we're thinking of the entire root structure but the rhizosphere is really going on in this really narrow space. You can see in the bottom right corner, um, 200 to five uh, micrometers, so 10 to the minus six meters um, from the edge of the root. And we're gonna look at uh, more in depth in that environment, but really all the action is happening there. And you can even zoom in more and see that it's not just the root, it's really like the hairs on the root where all the, action is going on. And by action, I mean, it's like the point where the plant's immune system and digestive system is interacting with the microbial community around it. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, it's similar to our own gut microbiome. Uh, there are a lot of uh, similarities one, could be, one can draw there. And it's an environment that has all kingdoms represented. So you have archaea, you have bacteria, um, you have different kinds of protists, fungi, the plant itself, and also uh, animals such as worms and nematodes. And um, when we refer to the living mass inside the rhizosphere, we call that the rhizobiome. Um, and as far as like its function to the plants, uh, the plant requires the rhizosphere for nutrient acquisition, water uptake. It's also its uh, immune system. So abiotic and biotic stress resistance. And the microbial community itself Basically, it lives off of the carbon that the plant um, sequesters. So that CO2 from the atmosphere, up to 90% of it goes into the rhizosphere. And the other 10% goes in towards actual plant construction and fruiting and such, um, which is quite uh, extensive. And we're gonna talk about rhizodeposition and how uh, basically as the roots are growing, they're shedding a lot of cells and most of that uh, secreted carbon is in the form of these slowed off cells. And because of that, the rhizosphere is a really nutrient-rich environment compared to bulk soil. Um, a lot of the research, of course, comes from soil-based systems. So where possible, I'll adapt that to uh, water-based cultivation. But um, and we believe that most of the um, mechanisms going on are pretty similar from soil to water. And um, so in that first image I showed of the root hairs, uh, the very tip of it is populated by these root border cells. And this is really like the point where the, uh, the plant hair is penetrating into the soil. And this is where the most amount of uh, nutrient exchange and such is going on. So this is, for example, the first line of defense 
uh, and trade, as I describe it, uh, for uh, for the plant. Um, and basically, uh, in as a function of the microbial community around the root hair at this point, the plant is going to be secreting different types of compounds. And uh, this could be anything from exudates, which we'll talk about, uh, secretions, so uh, different types of uh, secondary metabolites, and uh, mucilages, um, which we'll also uh, discuss in a moment. Those mucilages, for example, um, are similar to neutrophils in animals. So it's basically like a, a net that the plant can, um, can release and uh, it can um, use it to capture uh, viruses and bacteria that uh, would be potentially a threat to the plant. So it's really important that um, this microbial community is functioning well. And uh, there's uh, a lot of interesting things going on as to how exactly it's able to identify certain types of bacteria and viruses. But basically, um, for the microbial community, it makes sense to support the plant. For the plant, it makes sense to support that community. And when you remove um, one of those uh, components, then you weaken the entire system. Um, and uh, there's a lot of active research on this because by uh, because we know that plants can identify certain pathogens, uh, it means that it's possible to breed more efficient um, strains that are able to handle different kinds of pathogens. Um, however, there's not really a lot of good strategies to do that right now, but that's something that the research is, uh, is the direction research is going into. And for example, we could also find uh, probiotics, different organisms that could help in that whole plant response. Uh, looking at the composition of the rhizobiome, uh, basically, if you were to take a random amount of uh, soil that didn't have any roots in it, and then um, you were to like look at that entire diversity, you would see that only about 7% of that community would also be found in the uh, rhizosphere, meaning that there is a strong selective pressure by the plants to select for certain types of microorganisms that it wants to have. Um, and that's just as true in aquaponics as in uh, soil-based systems. And we believe that what's going on there is that there is a core root microbiome that forms. And, um, and then of course, if we could somehow influence that or understand uh, why exactly those uh, microorganisms are, are attracted to that root and what kind of exchange is going on. If we could understand that, then we could really advance this. Um, and uh, as that statement implies, we don't really understand a lot of what's going on there. Um, but uh, I'll basically just try to go through and share what we do now. So um, in terms of, say, in uh, that um, kind of community dynamic, in terms of uh, like the ability to influence the community, plants have the greatest say, uh, filamentous fungi, so uh, we'll talk about them uh, later on in this presentation. Um, they uh, are also really adept at, a, um, at a controlling the community, moving nutrients around and other microorganisms. And then after that, we have um, different kinds of protists, yeasts, uh, other types of fungi, and then bacteria and finally archaea, um, and which are all present, but uh, uh, individually do not have as much say as those uh, other organisms. Um, microalgae and aquaponic systems is, uh, they definitely are playing some role, but it's been hard to find um, good literature uh, really digging into what role are they playing. Um, I have my own theories, which um, we'll talk about uh, at the very end of the presentation. And also, I just want to mention that, um, so the uh, individual seeds have their own microbiome that the plant prepares for the next generation. It's kind of like a starter kit. And um, they are uh, definitely used by the plant, especially as the uh, seed is germinating. However, they do not predict the rhizobiome that will eventually form. So eventually, once the plant becomes a bit more mature, it starts selecting its own community anyways. And um, this uh, graphic I've included just because I want to show the blue are enriched microorganisms in the rhizosphere and the red are depleted microorganisms in the rhizosphere. Um, and uh, basically, this is what a lot of research papers look like, where they say, oh, we have all these different um, bacteria and archaea that we found in the sample. And we know that sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not there. And it's very, very difficult to say, okay, the presence of these organisms implies this type of metabolism. Or, you know, when a uh, plant is doing, it plants this stage, it's going to be influencing the community in this way. Um, we know that, uh, the, for example, some of the ways that the plant is able to 
influence the community is primarily through carbon and oxygen. Uh, so radial loss of oxygen is when um, oxygen is uh, diffuses out of the roots into the rhizosphere. And you really don't need much oxygen to influence these communities because they, they're always on the, on the brink of being anaerobic. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned, up to 90% of the carbon is going out through the roots. And uh, this uh, basically it can set off a whole uh, chain of, uh, of things going on. Um, yeah, there are different kinds of micro niches um, where certain microorganisms may be anaerobic, but around them it's an aerobic environment, but they found that one little area where it's anaerobic. And basically, if there is a niche available, then some organism will occupy it. And this basically is really why it's so complicated to study these systems. So can we pinpoint how the rhizobiome benefits the plant? No, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, it's just, uh, it's too diverse. There are too many compounds going on uh, being exchanged. Their uh, half-life is really short. The concentrations uh, for many of them are below what we're even able to detect. So we don't even know if we're able to detect everything. Um, they sometimes will have a direct impact on, for example, there, there may be a specific um, organic acid that we know when it's um, expressed by the plant will uh, enrich certain types of bacteria, but we don't know if it's happening directly or indirectly, um, how that's influencing nutrient uptake. It's this huge web, um, and, um, and so it's uh, really, I think it's important to be aware of uh, what's going on, um, but in the end, uh, one of the reasons why I'm always so impressed with uh, the farming community um, and uh, why I was interested in uh, cannabis aquaponics is that there's so many empirical studies that uh, basic farmers are doing on their own. And uh, it's really uh, one of the best things that we can do. And it's, it's great to see transform and uh, that, you know, for example, having one type of cultivation system works better than another, and then to later under like go back in and understand what is going on to what to the extent that that's possible so we're limited in our ability to have appropriate spatial resolution um, we're talking you know about micrometers of distance uh, between the root and the microbial community and all these micro niches so it's really small scale stuff going on and then as i mentioned detection limits and our ability to even identify these compounds um, and it's even harder to say what bacteria are responsible for what action. So bacteria like to do this thing called horizontal gene transfer, uh, which I've uh, shown in the graphics here. Um, basically, uh, if you look on the bottom right, uh, you can see horizontal gene transfer is literally when a bacteria or um, archaea and sometimes a few fungi will do this too, um, they'll take a piece of their DNA and they'll just give it to another microorganism that they're not related to. And it's not a form of uh, sexual reproduction. So it, it, um, it's uh, very widespread um, and uh, it makes uh, identifying the role of a certain bacterium very difficult because you may identify the bacterium correctly, but maybe in the reference database, it's not associated with a certain type of metabolism that in this system it has because of horizontal gene transfer. Um, another thing that makes things difficult is that the amount of um, conserved DNA within a single species can be quite low. So for Escherichia coli, it's 40% uh, of the genome is preserved across all subspecies meaning that humans are more closely related to bananas than one strain of E. coli would be to another strain of E. coli. And for like Bacillus subtilis, it's around 20%, um, and uh, it really can vary widely. Uh, yeah, so here, or sorry, 10% uh, for uh, this uh, example of uh, Bacillus. And uh, you can see this, uh, this is kind of a, an example of what some of these research papers look like where they will test a certain bacterial strain under different conditions to try to see what kind of phenotypes, so what types of genes are expressing, um, how that, how that uh, differs uh, across different strains. And uh, it's a very, it's extreme, uh, the kind of diversity that you get in terms of preferences for different types of carbon sources or other nutrients. So now I wanna talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, so basically we know that there are some organisms that are always good, and we call them probiotics or mutualists or plant growth promoting microorganisms. Some are universally bad, and those are obligatory pathogens. Um, so if you think of a, a virus, for example, it needs to be a pathogen. It's the only way that it can survive. 
but the vast majority are ugly and that they are opportunist or commensalist. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they don't really do anything. And um, the reason why I think that strategy works well is from the, is kind of along the lines of this uh, quote from Lord of the Rings. The closer we are to danger, the farther we are from harm. It's the last thing he'll expect. And basically, these are, these are bacteria that live in the rhizosphere. Most of the time, they're not doing anything. But every now and again, you know, if they, uh, they see a good opportunity, they'll take it. Um, so just to go through those three topics again, um, when we're referring to good bacteria, we're referring to uh, functions such as being a bioprotectant so that they actively suppress pathogens or predators such as nematodes, um, or that they can trigger plant defense responses. Uh, they could be biofertilizers so that they enhance the uptake of nutrients. They could be biostimulants, um, so they produce uh, compounds that um, will do something in plants that, for example, could improve the taste of the fruit, etc. And um, there are so lactic acid bacteria seem to be largely in this category, but it is uh, very difficult to uh, be precise about a, a lot of that, just because uh, we don't. It's, it's so diverse in terms of uh, DNA, and uh, there's a lot of uh, research that still needs to be done. But this is, when, when anyone is talking about probiotics, they're generally trying to refer to these types of organisms. And um, when we're thinking of uh, the bad, um, these are basically um, our strategists, meaning that they try to um, reproduce really quickly, and they benefit from what I call high-octane environments. So they have a type of uh, carbon source, for example, like sugar, or it, it could be I mean, anything, uh, some type of carbon source that they really like, some uh, niche that they really like. And once they get that niche, they do everything to keep that, um, keep that environment um, that's suitable for them. And that usually and pretty much always comes at the cost of uh, the community as a whole. So they, once they are established, they will actively try to um, proliferate and uh, take over. Um, and really, you can't uh, negotiate with them. <laughs> so if you're an obligatory pathogen, it's kind of, your cars are pretty clear. Um, opportunists, so they can be uh, tolerated commensal organisms, um, meaning that uh, there's, you know, as I said, they're, they're engaging um, with the rhizosphere. They're um, a benefit to plants even. Um, but if that plant shows some weakness, then they can uh, colonize and become a, a pathogen or uh, virulent. Um, they do that by having um, um, a good ability uh, to adhere to host tissue, so they'll grow along the roots. Um, they can form uh, biofilms that protect them from plant defenses or from other um, attacks, basically. Um, or they can be good at evading the host immune system. And, um, and uh, or they can uh, be really good at taking a certain nutrient that would be uh, limiting otherwise. So for, usually iron is involved in opportunistic or pathogen strategies, because if you can control the iron, then you can control one of the most important nutrients in the rhizosphere um, that's uh, relevant for photosynthesis in the plant. And, and so it's quite a coveted nutrient also because its bioavailability is sometimes uh, um, uh, quite low. Uh, so, yeah, the other thing I want to mention about opportunists is that they often are very closely related to pathogens and to plant growth promoting um, microorganisms. So it's not like lactic acid, bacteria, uh, lactic acid bacteria are always good. They usually, um, when they go rogue, uh, it's just, uh, you know, one species or one strain away from a, uh, an organism that is really beneficial to the plant. And um, so that, because of that, the uh, parasites can sometimes appear as commensalist, um, especially if the plant then adapts to accommodate for that type of niche in the rhizosphere. So sometimes the plant just gets used to having uh, a certain type of opportunist, and then uh, they find a, they create a new contract and a new agreement of living together. And uh, yeah, so it's quite complicated. Now I'm going to try to go through a few different nutrients and, um, and I, I hope this will be informative for you guys. So um, pretty much all carbon starts in the uh, uh, roots or it could be naturally already present in carbon uh, or naturally already present in the soil. Um, and it can go through a variety of pathways, but it always ends up as carbon dioxide. And um, so as far as the rhizosphere is concerned, uh, we're interested in seeing um, 
how it's uh, switching between available carbon in soil um, uh, into microbial biomass. Uh, that microbial biomass dies or the root cells die and then it goes back in the soil. And interesting enough, a lot of that is um, mediated by fungi. And fungi haven't really been explored to the extent that I would like them to be explored in aquaponic systems, but in soil system, it's very well known that um, they are a principal administrator of a lot of this carbon exchange. So they produce volatile organic carbons, which are like signaling molecules, and they can um, uh, influence, um, they can promote or discourage bacterial pr proliferation. Um, so we'll talk about that more, but just want to keep that out there that as far as carbon cycling goes, they are extremely important and we really don't have a clear idea of what they're, um, what, how often, how present they are and the extent in aquaponics or hydroponics that they're controlling things. And uh, I thought this was a good visualization of how strongly carbon can influence a microbial community. This was a, um, a study in the Aquaculture Engineering Journal um, on biofilters. But they uh, just saw, they noted that when they changed the amount of um, uh, chemical, oxidize, uh, chemical oxygen demand, it's basically a proxy to measure the amount of carbon uh, that's available in a, uh, in a sample. When they, um, just by changing the amount of uh, carbon uh, going into the biofilter, they significantly uh, influence the nitrification rate, meaning that they significantly change the nitrifying community. And uh, so things like carbon, nitrogen, but I would say really those two elements first um, are extremely powerful as ways to uh, mediate uh, the microbial community. Um, and I mentioned earlier that plants produce a lot of exudates. Uh, this uh, paper that is cited here has a really great uh, table where they list uh, more specifically different types of exudates. So um, we know that they're really important for uh, rhizosphere regulation. Um, if anyone is uh, interested in measuring uh, the amount that they're being produced by their plants at different types in their uh, life cycle, I think that there would be a lot of stuff that we can learn from that. But it's, um, as this list implies, it's a really diverse set of uh, compounds. And not only that, but it also changes over time. So these are plants that are grown in a hydroponic setting uh, for nine weeks. And the uh, profile of exudates that they were producing changed as a function of how uh, far into the growth cycle they were. So there's, uh, I, I mean, if anytime you see a signal like this, you know that we could measure something in that and know uh, something about the state of the plant. It's, it's communicating with us in some way, but we're just not able to really read this. And for example, one of the things making that complicated is that this study was done under sterile conditions, but of course we're not working under sterile conditions in an actual grow up. So uh, how that can be used to predict real world scenarios is an entirely open question. And um, there are also uh, a lot of, some of those compounds when they go into um, the water column or into soil, uh, they become humic substances, which is a very general term uh, for a variety of compounds formed through biotic and abiotic processes. Um, interesting enough, they um, are largely formed through the Maillard reaction, which is the same reaction that turns your bread brown when you cook it. Um, I, uh, I find that absolutely insane. But uh, basically, the, um, it's kind of like the, the, those carbon molecules that are extruded by the plants are um, on a microbial level being heated up. Um, there's no heat involved, but it's like the same chemical process. And uh, that involves a lot of metals too. So that's why humic substances um, have been known to improve bioavailability of metals. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be explored here. Um, when we're trying to measure carbon, um, I. Uh, thought that I would kind of show what are like the tools that we have available. So uh, for an individual point in time, we can look at the total biological oxygen demand, TBOD. Um, and from that, we can estimate the amount of bioavailable um, chemical oxygen demand, meaning that um, we can look at what type of carbon in a sample is available for microorganisms to use and what type of carbon would take a long time for those microorganisms to break down. Um, and that's uh, really important because some um, bacteria, uh, you know, their generation may only be 10 or 20 minutes long. Um, and so they don't have time to break down something that's 
really hard to break down. But like a fungus that lives, um, you know, can live for days or years, um, uh, it would have time to, to break that down. It would be more interesting for that fungus to do so. Um, and so we can, um, basically we, we can measure those two things or we can just collect on a filter all the carbon that is in the water uh, sample and put it in an oven. And uh, depending on the temperature, um, if we're like drying it out or if we're baking it at 450 degrees Celsius, we can also have an idea of the ash content um, or the total amount of solids. And that can be related to the amount of uh, microbial proliferation. So the rate that the microbial community in that sample is growing. And we can also uh, measure the amount of um, uh, non-biodegradable uh, soluble carbon. Uh, so there's basically, there's different formula that kind of relate these uh, uh, sample metrics together. Uh, we can look at the amount of non-biodegradable particulate carbon. And then uh, from those two, um, uh, we can measure the amount of non-biodegradable carbon in sample. So we can't really say what exactly is being secreted by the plant and in what concentration and what role it does, but at least we can kind of look at it from other perspectives. Um, but as you can see, this, uh, this is kind of limited and, and to the extent with which we can explain what is going on. And we also know that um, the amount of carbon dioxide um, in the, uh, like that the, surrounding the plant is also really important. And um, it's been associated with significant exudite profile shifts. So if you increase or decrease the amount of CO2, we know that it will have an effect. And that's, um, that's about all we can say about that. So uh, yeah, we hope to explore that further. There's, uh, but just to go over a few of the challenges that we're working with. And looking at an aquaponic setup, I made this uh, diagram to show which areas have more or less carbon or oxygen or mineral nutrient accumulation. Um, so uh, the water source uh, can have variable mineral nutrient accumulation depending on uh, where it's coming from, which aquifer, what's your surrounding geology like. Um, in the uh, recirculating aquaculture system, you can have uh, variable amounts of carbon depending on your flow rates and such. But once you go downstream of that, it's pretty, um, pretty uh, straightforward. Like your solids, of course, you're gonna have a lot of carbon, a lot of mineral nutrients, uh, very low oxygen. So that's generally going to go and push the community in a certain way. Biofilter uh, tends to have a lot more oxygen. You only need like two grams per liter to be uh, an oxygen-rich environment, microbially speaking. Um, and then the uh, hydroponics bed, um, by that point, you tend not to have very much carbon, but you have uh, other stuff going on. Uh, this was a paper out of uh, Israel showing uh, trying to measure uh, nitrogen and carbon um, throughout the cycle. And one thing that they showed um, pretty well um, here and, and then in other related literature is that um, in the, the biofilter, you tend to be losing a lot of uh, nitrogen gas. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, we can theoretically measure these things and uh, get an idea of what that community is looking at or what the community is trying to do. Um, Archaea, for example, um, since they've been discovered in like 2005 or so, um, we now know that they are responsible, for example, for a third of nitrification in the oceans, but we don't really have a lot of data on them, especially in controlled environment agriculture, because um, when you use the type of sequencing strategy for bacteria, it doesn't really capture a lot of archaea diversity. So we've been looking with the wrong set of tools. Um, switching to nitrogen now, um, I really like this graphic because it basically shows how many different like pathways nitrogen has to um, to become more oxidized or more reduced, and uh, the different kinds of microbial communities and how they uh, relate to each of those steps. Um, so it's not just ammonia, nitrite, nitrate. Um, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, you have a lot of different. You know, there are a lot of things that can be going on. Uh, starting with uh, urea production by the fish, um, all the way to nitrogen fixation, which not doesn't happen only in legumes, but also in all plants. Um, but to uh, legumes just are really good at um, creating uh, an environment for that. Um, so about 20% of plant nitrogen is found in the rhizosphere on average. And that's usually in the form of those uh, exudates that are coming out. So there could be like some proteins in there or cell wall components you know, because they're releasing a lot of cells as well. 
Um, and bac bacterial communities are very sensitive to changes in nitrogen. So it's, um, I would say, generally best to keep those um, concentrations stable or uh, rising or decreasing at a like fairly regular and slow rate. Um, and uh, what the microbial community does for the plants in terms of nitrogen is basically it can, it's involved in nitrogen fixation, um, it breaks down proteins, and then it will break down urea. So a lot of that is not only happening in the biofilter, but the beauty in aquaponics is that um, we're actually, um, we're, we're having a biofilter-like environment um, everywhere uh, in the entire system um, because of the way that plants are uh, interacting with the water column. Um, so generally, uh, plants like a, um, a, a nitrate um, and ammonia as their or ammonia, sorry, as their um, preferred nitrogen sources, um, and uh, they tend to not be that great at taking up nitrogen by itself. They really require the microbial community for that, and they have um, different uh, uptake systems. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but basically, uh, they can. Um, uh, uh, take up more nitrate or ammonium, uh, depending on uh, what's available, but they do like to have that combination. Um, and um, there's a huge open area of research as to how we can improve nitrogen uptake by improving nitrogen fixation. Uh, there's a, um, yeah, there's, it's not a, a too well explored right now, but the, basically the plant genotype, like the, um, plays a role, but also the microbial community, and we could potentially create probiotics for that. Can nitrogen uptake be improved on the plant side? Um, we don't yet know enough about the uptake mechanisms to do that in terms of genetic engineering. Um, however, you can select for certain types of um, uh, plants that are better at taking nitrogen um, up. And uh, one of the uh, uh, best predictors of that is having a lot of roots. So um, I've always felt that uh, this kind of like root hatred in the hydroponic community uh, was a little bit unwarranted. Um, it may be that having a large uh, root system uh, will improve the uh, fruiting bodies um, of, of the plant. So um, I think that's uh, it's probably best to explore uh, individually in different farms. Because um, yeah, that uh, microbial community is important. Uh, I'm just gonna touch on phosphorus a bit. Um, Basically, as far as the um, microbial communities are concerned, um, they can uh, break down different types of phosphorus that they encounter. Um, but uh, as far as um, what's going on in the rhizosphere, uh, they try to bring, uh, bring phosphorus into an orthophosphate form. So a lot of uh, microbial processes related to uh, phosphorus eventually will put in that form. So if you can measure amount of orthophosphate in your system, then you know what is directly bioavailable to the plants. Um, so other nutrients, um, one thing that uh, I've found uh, um, in our own research is that we can add this trace mineral solution and it pretty much always satisfies uh, random trace mineral needs. But basically different microbial communities require different trace nutrients. And um, even in really controlled laboratory settings, we have a lot of difficulty trying to identify whether it's like copper or magnesium or molybdenate, um, cobalt. Um, but generally when we're, uh, when in doubt, we just add this uh, Vishniak solution. Um, so the microbial community is definitely really involved with it. But it's um, it's hard to yeah say what are the ideal uh, target concentrations, and looking at like ocean systems, um, there are basically four pathways that uh, those trace nutrients are made um, are processed by microbial communities. Um, so we know that organic matter is really important. We know that iron is like super important, and that all the types of iron hydroxides so rusts. Um, that, uh, that it can be uh, formed in. Uh, manganese, um, which um, tends to be um, quite uh, absent in uh, fish waste, but we know that it's very important for trace nutrients and plants and uh, microbial systems. And then um, pterogenous, which basically just means rare earth minerals, um, that they also play an important role. So something like aluminum, for example. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that this would be a really great um, area for future research, but um, it's definitely something like this is definitely happening in aquaponic systems, but we don't know enough about it. Uh, sulfur, we know, is also really important. Here, I want to point out that um, if you see on the left-hand side, 
Uh, 5% of uh, sulfur and soil is in that top section, and then 95% is in that bottom section. So most sulfur is in an organic form. And um, primarily, it's a sulfate that plants really like. So plants pretty much want to have that sulfur presented to them in a sulfate form. Um, and uh, they can also take it up in a slightly different form, but it's like, uh, really, they prefer sulfate. Um, and they can also take up sulfur dioxide through the leaves, which um, is convenient if you happen to live in an area that's quite uh, polluted because a lot of air pollution is in form of, there's a lot of sulfur dioxide in air pollution. Um, and uh, we know that archaea, interesting enough, play a big role here. So they're not bacteria, but they're, um, they're archaea are the, always these like very strange um, organisms that look a lot like bacteria, but have uh, very funky metabolisms. And um, so they're doing something with sulfur. Um, so reduced inorganic sulfur compounds, um, they, uh, are in, um, they would be things like uh, H2S, which um, you may or may, people may or may not know is highly toxic uh, to humans, um, but also to fish. But for some reason, plants really like them. And they use them as a signaling molecule. So they are not bothered by that. And the microbial community will provide some amount of um, hydrogen sulfide. Um, so uh, they're in low concentrations, they're beneficial to plants, and they're involved in a lot of different uh, stress pathways. Um, and uh, there, it seems to be that it's a pretty profound uh, system uh, that the plant is able to use. Uh, so it'll be interesting to explore that further. And uh, well, we don't have a lot of data measuring uh, H2S in, in the rhizosphere or in the water column. So that's an area of future research. But um, this graphic, I think, uh, summarizes things pretty well, that basically um, the plant is going to try to push things towards sulfate when it needs uh, to increase the amount of sulfur in its tissue. And uh, probably when that uh, need is satisfied, then it's going to allow the microbial community to um, switch towards other types of sulfur compounds. Because things like sulfur and nitrogen for the microbial community are basically ways that they can store electrons. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's it's kind of like that free market concept that I mentioned on the in the title slide. Um, all these things are in flux all the time, and it's basically um, you know you'll have uh, one bacteria that's offering sulfate, uh, and in exchange um, it wants to use that electron so that it can uh, take up some form of carbon. And depending on the concentrations available to it, it's going to be, um, you know, those compounds will have different values uh, in that microbial system. Um, and what's interesting is uh, depending on the redox state, so whether um, there's more, uh, I mean, on a chemical level, it's whether there's more electrons available or less. Um, but basically, you can, as a proxy, you can look at like the amount of oxygen um, and uh, dissolved oxygen in the water column. Um, but in the rhizosphere, uh, it's important to have both environments. So you don't want to blast the roots with uh, oxygen, but you also don't want it to become entirely anaerobic. And um, it's by exploiting those two different um, environments of an oxidizing environment and reducing environment that plants and the microorganisms are able to create these six major signaling molecules. Um, and so we've uh, mentioned uh, a few of them. I haven't mentioned the um, carbon monoxide, but um, basically it's, uh, um, they all have uh, different um, and fairly complex uh, pathways, but um, I just find that interesting. So if we would be able to measure those um, accurately in the rhizosphere, I think we'd be able to learn a lot about what the plant is trying to signal to the microbial community in terms of its nutritional needs. Um, and uh, where is the middle ground in all this? Uh, we don't have like a good number for a ratio, uh, but we do know that, once again, fungi are really important here. So sulfur oxidizing fungi um, have uh, two different um, uh, pathways where they can manipulate the concentration of sulfur. And um, they, are, they are doing that with some sort of intention of influencing um, plant growth and root growth. Um, but we don't, uh, we don't know much about that. Um, iron basically uh, switches between um, um, iron 3 up here and iron 2, and um, it uh, is very uh, redox dependent, um, and uh, the microbial community plays a big role here. 
And I want to uh, point out this uh, scale on the right-hand side. So this is basically a scale showing the uh, redox potential at, um, the P at a pH of seven, uh, meaning that uh, if you were to put iron, just the, the atomic iron into, um, for example, a hydroponic grow bed at pH seven, then um, if the redox potential were 0 0.8, then um, there would be uh, pretty much 50% iron three and 50% iron two. Um, and then depending on the type of chelating agent you're adding, you're going to be uh, influencing the um, ideal redox environment. So uh, at the bottom, um, you can see like iron EDTA requires like a slightly, uh, like almost a reducing environment. So it's very, uh, ideally there should be very little oxygen um, present at the same time that there's iron EDTA for that to be bioavailable to the plants. And if it were, um, so ferrodoxin is used by a lot of microorganisms as a way to capture iron. And uh, so at that point, um, they're going to be most active when there's a reducing environment. Um, and uh, so basically what this is saying is um, the amount of um, oxygenation in your, uh, in your hydroponics grow bed is gonna strongly influence um, all these different compounds uh, independently of pH. So pH will influence um, metal bioavailability, but also the uh, uh, redox uh, potential. Um, and uh, we're uh, uh, actively exploring how different types of chelating agents can be more or less bioavailable to plants. Um, but uh, yeah, basically, it's uh, also very interesting and very complex. So now I'm going to, um, I hope that wasn't too overwhelming for different, uh, uh, looking at the chemical side of things. And I just want to quickly look at uh, uh, fungi. Um, fungi colonization is ubiquitous, cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitan moderately non-selective, and occurs uh, for pretty much all plants. Um, the ones that we're mostly growing are angiosperms, uh, and 80% of them uh, must have a fungal community in order to survive. For gymnosperms, like uh, pine trees and ferns, they always require a fungal community. Um, and so fungi can basically, um, they can grow um, outside of the roots or, or inside the roots. And uh, so we can refer to them as endomycorrhizae if they grow inside the roots or ecto if they grow outside. Um, as far as we're concerned, the main thing to talk about here are endomycorrhizae. Um, and uh, endomycorrhizae are also called arbuscular mycorrhizae. So um, I don't know why we have all these different names for them. You can call them AM. Um, or you can call them endomycorrhizae, it's all the same thing. Basically, they grow inside the cells uh, of the roots and, uh, and then they coat the roots as well, forming what's called a fungal sheath. Um, and for their services, they usually will take up uh, 20 to 40% of all that carbon that is being released by the plant. So it's kind of a little mafia-esque. The plant really doesn't have a choice. Um, but what they do for the plant is a wide range of services related to um, basically water retention, uh, nutrient uptake, uh, plant defense. Um, they um, will attract other microorganisms and move them around. Um, and they do often, I would say um, endomycorrhizae, so the AM fungi, they always have the plant's uh, needs in mind and they tend to be very selective about what kind of um, like types of plants that they prefer. Um, and one of the reasons why I am fairly confident that they are uh, active in aquaponic systems is because of uh, a particular protein called hydrophobins, uh, which I used to research um, beforehand. And basically, um, hydrophobins, they are used by the fungi to grow on surfaces. So it could be a water-air surface, it could be um, water-solid surface, um, but basically they're very happy with um, water-dominant environments. Um, and because they are going to be looking for uh, fungi, or their fungi will be looking for plants to colonize, and because they're able to um, grow quite fine in um, water-dominant environments, I would bet that if you were to look for them in um, aquaponics and hydroponics even, um, you would find a, a huge amount of diversity. Um, however, it's kind of difficult to pinpoint what types of fungi to add as a probiotic, if anyone was in, would be interested in that. Um, and that's because they, um, they, they reproduce in a lot of strange ways. Um, 
And it's hard to be really specific about the strain. So, you know, for example, people talk about trichoderma. Trichoderma is a great, um, uh, most trichoderma species will form symbiotic relationships with plants, but um, sometimes it can be opportunists. As we talked about earlier, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. Um, and so these are some in, uh, pictures of what uh, those um, AM fungi look like. Um, and uh, you can see that they will grow towards the root and then grow inside the root and then reproduce all around the root. And they help with something, for example, uh, salinity stress. So if that root, and uh, salinity stress is the same thing as drought as far as the plant is concerned. Um, and uh, so if that root is uh, uh, drying out, then uh, fungi are gonna be able to um, tell the plant how to respond to that faster than the plant would be able to do it on its own. Um, and uh, so there are a lot of, uh, uh, I don't really have time to go into much detail on this, but basically um, there are a lot of uh, compounds that we've identified at the bottom of the page here um, uh, as uh, indicative of salinity stress and drought. And we know that the fungi are able to influence it, um, but it's, um, it's hard to say like, okay, if you add, uh, you know, if you measure the pH, uh, then that means that it's like stressed in this way. But that would be the place to look if you wanted to find out information on how the plant is responding to salinity or drought stress. Um, so yeah, just to summarize the whole discussion on um, the rhizosphere community, the, that community does not want the plant to die. And um, while some uh, beneficial microorganisms have been identified and could be used as probiotics, um, there's still a lot um, that we're still having trouble discerning between opportunist and plant growth promoting bacteria. In the water column, this entire thing is also going on. Um, and there are a lot of different names for microbial assemblages. Some of them are funnier than others, in my opinion. Uh, Biofloc is um, often used when you talk about like shrimp cultivation or uh, sort of like dirtier water cultivation. If you're an environmental microbiologist studying the ocean, then you call it marine snow. If you're from um, University of Massachusetts and you're looking at the Sisyphus salt marsh, then you call them pink or green berries, depending on whether they're sulfur dominated, so the bottom left photo, or algae dominated, the bottom center photo. Um, and the composition of these communities is extremely diverse. Um, for example, we, um, so when we look at freshwater microbial communities, we've been able to generally associate certain families with certain roles. So uh, this is kind of a, a rough overview of what some of those look like. Um, this is pretty much the, what we're reliably able to do right now. Say so that like, generally when you have these types of bacteria, they're probably going to be doing this kind of metabolism. And so one thing that we would really like to do is create something called designer bioflock, where basically, ideally, we would like to uh, pick strains that are able to do certain functions for the plant and for fish. And um, I think in the next 10 years, we'll probably have this uh, at least done to some extent. But um, really, the sky is the limit. And we do think that um, we need to go beyond just looking at uh, bacteria, uh, start looking at um, uh, protist and um, other eukaryotes such as slime molds that are slime molds are not fungi but fungi also of course uh, would be involved here um, uh, such fungi such as yeast um, and maybe as well like filamentous fungi or the um, am fungi that I was mentioning earlier with the root systems um, and these microbial assemblages they start off just free-flowing microbial cells they start producing um, a uh, sort of sticky substance called uh, EPS, um, ex, um, exopolymeric um, substances, like it's kind of basically like polysaccharide glue. Um, they start communicating with each other, which we call quorum sensing. Um, and uh, these uh, granules, as they form, they eventually get um, a dead space inside. And they also get different um, aeration zones. So the edge of these kind of uh, microbial assemblages, or granules, tends to be um, aerobic. And so you get, um, these are ammonia oxidizing prokaryotes, AOP, nitrogen um, or nit uh, trite oxidizing bacteria. Um, and then uh, you get some uh, heterotrophic bacteria. And as you can see the scale here, we're talking about a really tiny, um, you know, sliver of, uh, of these granules. And then the bottom part, you're going to have um, different types of nitrogen metabolizing bacteria, such as comamox, anamox, denitrification going on. And then in the very center, you're going to have uh, a dead zone. And it's, um, there's a lot of potential um, um, 
with the, the float, free floating communities, but then also biofilms. Um, while biofilms are often associated with biofouling, uh, it's really a simplification because 99% um, of all microbial life is organized in biofilms. And um, they're extremely important. And, and theoretically, you could have a system where your biofilm community, which you're influencing by manipulating certain nutrients in the water column, is protecting the, uh, the system as a whole. So meaning that the pathogens would not be able to colonize the system because of the biofilm and the microbial assemblages being organized in a certain way. Um, biofilms are resistant to water flow. They are resistant to antimicrobial agents as produced by um, uh, pathogens through the extracellular polymeric substances, the EPS that I just mentioned. Um, and they have a lot of micro niches, so um, relating to the strata um, in the biofilm. Um, so as they um, are forming, uh, you're, uh, this is kind of uh, similar to the previous two slides, you're selecting for different types of uh, microorganisms. And it's that diversity that's quite powerful. So we're really interested in understanding how do we get good biofilm and how do we prevent biofouling? Because biofouling seems to happen when the environment is unstable. And as I mentioned in that um, pathogen slide at the beginning of the presentation, um, when you have that niche that a pathogen likes, that pathogen will start colonizing it and then make other niches around it more like the niche that it prefers. So it will, it will, uh, it will force its lifestyle onto the community. Um, we know that carbon is really important here. Um, so the accumulation of carbon could potentially lead to this kind of instability. Um, and there's um, generally right now we can say that the best strategy is to limit the excessive accumulation of carbon. But maybe in the future we'll be able to have a better answer. Um, in terms of what we're able to measure, um, I don't know how practical, and I don't think that a lot of this is practical for um, individual farmers, but I hope that um, in, uh, we'll be able to integrate more community-based research projects where uh, farmers could mention, or farmers could measure the total suspended solids, which is just filtering the water column onto a filter, sending it to us uh, to be analyzed, measuring the um, amounts of different types of nitrogenous species, um, and uh, looking at uh, various uh, profiles of the amount of nutrients in the water column or inside the plant through plant sap analysis. Um, and just to, um, in the end, when we have enough data, uh, we can make better models. Uh, we'll be able to understand uh, more of these biotic and abiotic interactions, which currently are way too diverse and dynamic to predict. Um, but we are, um, we are learning a lot. and. Uh, you know, got to keep in mind that like it was only in the 1980s, 1990s that we started sequencing period. Um, and uh, a lot of uh, the data that we've collected is only like in the past 10 years. And we're still in the process of integrating different data types. Um, and it's just such a, a new field in the grand scheme of things. Um, so uh, we just need more time. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Um, feel free if I will try to answer questions. I, I kind of went a, a little bit longer than I um, had hoped. Um, if I don't get around to answering an individual question or if you think of a question later on, feel free to send me an email. Um, I, uh, I enjoy talking about this and I tried to not go into too much detail, but at the same time, um, I wanted to uh, go into um, what, are, what we know as far as the scientific side of things. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the sharing and then just go to back to normal video. But, sure. um, we had a question. That was an amazing presentation, by the way. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, we had a question from Chad about um, do biofilms present a hazard on soil surface when build up to extreme numbers in compost tea brewing processes? Mm -hmm. Well, um, as I mentioned, that that carbon, uh, the amount of carbon in the system, uh, can trigger these uh, sort of niches that are um, preferred by pathogens. Um, so there is that potential that if you, uh, if you, uh, if you push that um, physiochemical uh, environment in a certain way, you can inadvertently create a niche that you don't want to create. Um, in the end, stability is the best. So whatever, whatever is working and not, and whatever is working well and preventing fluctuations is probably gonna be the most stable and uh, therefore the, the safest system. It's something that the plants and fish will be able to get used to. And then uh, they'll basically always be looking out for each other, kind of like how 
you know, if you imagine in like the African savanna, all the herbivores tend to look out for predators together. Um, it's kind of the same thing going on on a microbial level. Have you done any microbial inoculations and testing around that? Or are you strictly doing mostly observational stuff? And if you have done inoculations, what, what did you try and what kind of results did you find? Well, um, a couple of years ago, we were looking at um, inoculating um, uh, phosphate solubilizing bacteria in an, a hydroponic system. Um, and I had bought, um, in, in the Netherlands, I bought uh, some sort of commercial uh, probiotic that it claimed to have these phosphate solubilizing bacteria. Interesting enough, when we sequenced the probiotic that we had purchased, uh, the advertised bacteria were not present. And uh, that's a common um, problem in a lot of probiotics in the European Union and in the United States, uh, that there's not the same kind of regulation. Um, I, we haven't really done a lot of work looking at individual probiotics because we've been trying to um, understand the mechanisms of how probiotics work. One thing that I would really say about probiotics is imagine like, you know, yogurt and kefir are generally considered to be quite good probiotics for humans. Um, and when you grow uh, yogurt or when you're growing a probiotic for plant inoculation, um, that environment that it's being grown in tends to be quite different than the end environment that you're putting it in. So when you drink yogurt, uh, those bacteria are really not able to colonize your gut microbiome. They enter, they play some sort of role, and we don't really, like for yogurt, we don't have like a very clear understanding of what is going on. And observationally, we see that it's good, that like it's healthy for us. Um, and so I think that with um, a lot of probiotic application, um, I think it, uh, it may be difficult to say what is being applied and what is staying and what is being applied and triggering some sort of effect. So right now, what we're doing is mostly observational because we're trying to understand kind of how useful are probiotics and where, where is the right you know, time and place you know, we want to, you want to be applying something that the plant will accept as well. So maybe it's a great probiotic um, uh, based on lab studies, but maybe uh, the plant doesn't need that at that moment or doesn't like it's, it. It uh, gives me a headache sometimes how complicated all these interactions are. <laughs> Have you seen any um, negative observations with particular bacteria or other uh, microorganisms in this realm? Um, yeah, so because of the um, genetic similarity between pathogens, uh, opportunists, and uh, plant growth promoting microorganisms, um, it's, um, it can be very uh, easy to um, grow a certain culture that ends up becoming um, an opportunist. Or, um, and Angela had mentioned this in, in her presentation, if you apply too much of something, um, then that can also um, uh, ruin things. For example, each uh, microorganism is going to require certain things to survive, it's gonna, certain foods. Um, and if there's a scarcity of those foods, then uh, you can start getting some type of competition that you may not want. Um, and uh, it's, um, yeah, so it can definitely, um, I, I, there's a lot of really great work in terms of the Korean natural farming, uh, regenerative agriculture, and um, what I like about a lot of those strategies is that they've been developed over um, many different biomes. So, uh, you know, it's kind of being done a little bit all over the world. And um, there are strategies that tend to err on the conservative side of um, inoculation. So uh, a lot of things are quite diluted because in the end, if that bacteria is really a good plant growth promoting microorganism, then the plant will promote its growth as well. So it just needs to be there in enough number that it can survive. And then if the plant wants it there, and if the fungi want it there, then they will promote it. Um, so you don't need to add a huge amounts. Awesome, well, that's definitely good to know. Uh, how can mm -hmm. people find out more about you and uh, the, the work that you're doing? Well, um, uh, I guess the best way would just be uh, um, through different conferences and stuff. Um, we're really just focusing on the research side. So, and because we're a public institution, uh, we don't uh, have like a website or anything besides the university website. Um, but uh, we'll be putting out articles and talking uh, in conferences. Um, so yeah, hopefully having more talks and such too.
Do you want to put your, your email back up on the screen real quick so people can email you if they have a question? Um, yeah, so I'll go with this. Yeah, so victor.labanov. There we go. <laughs> Audio. Yeah, that's uh, Joe's computer. Audio. All right, I will log, log off. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. It's a great